This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I think we'll start out today's program with a, uh, a joke from Jimmy Kimmel, or at least the people that write for Jimmy Kimmel. Said Jimmy in his monologue, I presume, of course, anytime top secret documents are mishandled, it needs to be taken seriously. That's something Republicans and Democrats believe, although Republicans have only believed it since last week. I was quite taken by a meme relating to another quote from the distant past, in this case from Albert Einstein. The, uh, the Nazis and some other anti-Semites decided to push back against Einstein after he published his general relativity theory. And so it was that a book was published titled 100 Authors Against Einstein, to which Einstein replied, Why 100? If I were wrong, one would have been enough. All right, since we're starting out in a humorous vein, I, I, I want to report that I did find the Dave Barry's 2022 Year in Review, which I promised you I would read when I did find it. And so I will start with, There were positive developments in 2022 said Dave Barry. Best of all, the looming apocalyptic threat of catastrophic global change was finally eliminated thanks to the breakthrough discovery of a solution. It's been staring us in the face all the time. You throw food at art. Yes, as Mr. Barry points out, that there was an incident that we saved a clipping on from last October that I guess is the time to address more fully. So let's take a detour out of his year in review to note that in London... In October, climate protesters threw soup over Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers in London's National Gallery. And they did this to protest fossil fuel extraction. Apparently, it caused no damage to the glass-covered painting. The group, Just Stop Oil, which wants the British government to halt new oil and gas projects, said activists dumped two cans of tomato soup over the oil painting and then glued themselves to the gallery wall. The soup reportedly splashed across the glass covering of the painting in its gilded frame. The gallery said there's some minor damage to the frame, but the painting is unharmed. It was cleaned and returned to its place in the gallery the same day. Here's the part I like the best. London's Metropolitan Police said officers arrested two people on suspicion of criminal damage and aggravated trespass. Now, I think in America they would have just arrested them for criminal damage and aggravated trespass, but the British being a little more circumspect made it suspicion of those two things. Now, Mr. McMillan, who's quite an art aficionado, says that he would have just left them glued to the wall and called that the art. But you know, my feeling is if if they had done that, this would have just induced copycat crimes. Hey, Mom, look, I'm in an art gallery. I'm part of the art. Deberry notes, starting with January, that according to polls, the two biggest concerns by the public by far were the pandemic and the economy. Consequently, Congress is focused laser-like on the Senate filibuster rule. This is a legislative tactic that is evil when the other side uses it, but good when your side uses it. Notes Dave, meanwhile, the national debt, for the first time ever, creeps over $30 trillion, which is more than the entire U.S. economy is worth. He said, fortunately, this is nothing to worry about. Forget we ever brought it up. Of course, here we are one year later, and we're approaching yet another debt ceiling. I'm sure the politicos in Washington are going to deal with by extending it or raising it or doing whatever they do to avoid addressing the issue, which, as Dave points out, is nothing to worry about. 
forget we even brought it up. Barry notes that in other financial news, more and more people are buying cryptocurrencies, which appeal to investors because the cryptocurrency market is not controlled by a government. Instead, it is controlled by a 13-year-old Justin Wigenbloomer of Teaneck, New Jersey, who runs the whole shebang out of his PlayStation 5. Moving on to February. Ukraine is a nation that, through poor planning, is located right next to Russia. This is unfortunate because Russian President Vladimir Putin has long wanted to establish closer ties with Ukraine, in the same sense that a grizzly bear wants to establish closer ties with salmon. On February 24th, the Russian army invades Ukraine. Everyone assumes the Russians will easily prevail. But the Ukrainians put up surprisingly strong resistance. We're using the term resistance in the sense of physically fighting back, as opposed to, say, tweeting defiant hashtags. Most of the world rallies around the underdog Ukrainians and their charismatic president, Volodymyr Zelensky, a former comedian and actor who is basically the opposite of Vladimir Putin. Although, to be fair, if Putin did comedy, he would kill. On the medical front, many states and municipalities drop their mask mandates as elected officials become aware of new scientific data showing there is a strong statistical correlation between enforcing mask mandates and not getting reelected. Moving on to March. Will Smith slaps Chris Rock during the Oscars and is arrested for assault. No, that is what would happen to a non-celebrity if he slapped Chris Rock. Will Smith, on the other hand, sits back down and shortly thereafter receives an Oscar and a standing ovation. This incident results in a massive outpouring of media think pieces from media thinkers, pondering the significance of the slap. The story dominates the news for days, receiving far more coverage than the war in Ukraine, which is still going on, but which unfortunately from a public relations standpoint does not involve any American celebrities. In economic news, inflation continues to worsen despite intensive efforts by the Biden administration to explain that it is caused by Vladimir Putin, corporate greed, COVID, supply chain issues, global climate change, the filibuster rule, and murder hornets. Moving on to April. Elon Musk says he wants to buy Twitter for $44 billion, which works out to $1 for every apocalyptic tweet emitted about the sale by alarmed Twitter users who are deeply concerned about the precedent of allowing billionaires to buy major media platforms, which have traditionally been small mom-and-pop type operations like the Washington Post and Facebook. In pandemic news, a federal judge rules that the Centers for Disease Control cannot require people to wear masks on airplanes and other public transportation. This leads to a calm and rational debate on the benefits of masks, with both sides citing scientific data to support their positions and nobody accusing anybody of having bad motives. Then Dorothy wakes up and she's back in Kansas. In other leadership news, Florida's combative Governor Ron DeSantis, always looking for new things to combat, takes on an insidious threat to the state's families and the American way of life, Disney. The issue is that the Walt Disney Corporation expressed an opinion deemed unacceptable by the governor, leaving him with no choice but to sign a law that would, one, strip Disney of its special legal status, two, require Donald Duck to put on pants, three, require Disney to, quote, undo whatever it did to the governor's official vehicle, unquote. Moving on to May, and we love Dave Barry. Said Dave about May, the war in Ukraine continues but receives less and less coverage in the U.S. as Americans turn their attention to the historic Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard defamation trial. 
At issue is Heard's 2018 Washington Post op-ed alleging that Depp, once the embodiment of cool in the role of dashing pirate Captain Jack Sparrow, has developed a case of face bloat and looks, quote, like the owner of a struggling waterbed store, unquote. The nation is shocked when an 18-year-old with a disturbing social media history uses a semi-automatic rifle he obtained legally to commit a horrific mass murder. Ten days later, the nation is again shocked when another 18-year-old with a disturbing social media history uses a semiotic rifle he obtained legally to commit horrific mass murder. Clearly, said Dave, nothing could have been done to prevent these tragedies, so the nation has no choice but to wait until it is time to be shocked again. June. The U.S. Supreme Court, in what legal experts view as evidence of a shift to the right, rules all previous court decisions wrong. And the House Select Committee to investigate the living hell out of January 6th. Here's testimony, much of it from former members of the Trump administration, that leaves objective observers with only two possible interpretations of Donald Trump's actions on that day. Number one, Trump is a pathological narcissist in his delusional effort to cling to power, ignored the sane adults on his staff, and listens instead to Ruli Giuliani, which is like getting legal counsel from a magic eight ball and in the end showed an utter disregard for the sanctity of his office, the rule of law, the welfare of the nation, and the physical safety of thousands of people. Or two. July. President Biden on an official visit to the Middle East is widely criticized for fist-bumping Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The White House press office explains that the president thought it was a different Saudi Prince, Prince Mohammed bin Salman. On July 4th, America's Independence Day celebration is marred by a horrendous mass killing allegedly committed by a young man who had extremely disturbing social media history but was still able to legally obtain a semi-automatic rifle. As you can imagine, everyone is shocked. August, FBI agents search Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's personal residence, and seize classified documents as well as what a Justice Department source describes as several thousand misappropriated packets of White House ketchup. Trump declares this is part of the fake news deep state witch hunt. His opponents declare that Trump is finally, this time it's really happening, people, going to be arrested for something. And thus the Donald Trump show, now in its 373rd week, continues its seemingly, its indeterminable run on the center stage of American politics, kind of like the Phantom of the Opera, except it never gets to intermission. A Texas jury says Dave Barry awards $50 million in damages to two Sandy Hook parents in their lawsuit against Alex Jones, who is usually described in the news media as a conspiracy theorist because it would be unprofessional to describe him as, quote, a gigantic talking bowel movement, unquote. (laughs) September. Governor Ron DeSantis, who we remind you is governor of Florida, uses Florida state funds to charter two planes in Texas, which is not part of Florida, and has them transport a group of migrants from Venezuela, which is also not part of Florida, to Martha's Vineyard, yet another place that is not part of Florida. This would be a hilarious prank if not for the fact that these are actual human beings as opposed to Muppets to be deployed in a cynical game of migrant whack-a-mole. On a sadder note, the world mourns the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the beloved monarch who reigned over the UK during its transition from the center of a vast global empire to a popular tourist destination roughly the size of a pickleball court. She is succeeded by her 113-year-old son, King Charles the Uncomfortable, who will be officially crowned next year in a traditional British ceremony featuring numerous horses. 
In China, President Xi Jinping wins an unprecedented third term when delegates to the Communist Party Congress unanimously elect after careful consideration not to die. And wrapping this up, November. In finance, the big story is the catastrophic collapse of cryptocurrency giant FTX, which implodes as stunned investors discover that maybe it's not such a good idea to trust your money to a company with a meaningless name, an incomprehensible business model, headed by the fourth runner-up in the John Belushi lookalike contest. And finally, December. In a historic milestone for the U.S. space program, the Artemis I spacecraft, after a 21-and-a-half-day voyage that took it past the moon to a point 260,000 miles out in space, returns to Earth to pick up the crew. From now on, states a red-faced NASA spokesperson, we're going to make sure they're on board before we launch. All right, I think that was worth about 12 minutes of our time, don't you? We do consider Mr. Dave Barry to be somewhat of a national treasure. On assignment for Radio Parallax many years ago, I did travel to Santa Rosa to attempt to meet Mr. Barry, who was having a speaking engagement. Well-wishers were allowed to line up and have a brief exchange with Mr. Barry. My exchange, slightly shortened, went like this. Me, it's a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Barry. Dave Barry, oh please, call me Mr. Barry. Me, what brings you to Santa Rosa? Dave Barry, I was born here, he said, pointing to the tent where he was about to speak. And for the record, no, Dave Barry was not born under the tent in Santa Rosa or any place else in Santa Rosa, California. And in the third exchange in this brilliant banter, I noted, I have a radio program and we quote from you all the time. To which Dave Barry replied, I don't care, but that guy might, pointing to his manager. Now, to date, we have not heard from Dave Barry's manager or Dave Barry's lawyer or for that matter, Dave Barry. So we're going to continue to quote from him as we just did. After all, we had it straight from the horse's mouth. I don't care. And just to balance off uh, Mr. Dave Barry's humorous column, we have another humorous column by Bill Sher in the Washington Monthly, although he didn't intend it to be humorous. And in this case, we are laughing at him, not with him. Said Mr. Sher, with what we presume is a straight face, voter ID, early voting, and mail-in ballots have little or no impact on which party wins elections. That's the takeaway from the 2022 midterms. Everything both parties have told themselves about election law was proved wrong. In Georgia, Republicans passed a law in 2021 that limited access to ballot drop boxes, increased ID requirements for mail-in voting, and banned mobile voting buses. Democrats called the law Jim Crow II and said the clear intent was to deter black voters. But such laws invariably boomerang and galvanize voters. In the Georgia Senate runoff, large black turnout propelled Democrat Ralph Warnock to victory. Evidently, Mr. Scher is unaware of the work of Greg Pallast, who we cited on this program, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, explaining to us how the math showed that there had actually been a drop of a million votes in Georgia thanks to all these efforts of the Republicans. Now, we're going to resist the temptation uh, that uh, Dave Barry succumbed to of referring to Mr. Scher as a gigantic talking bowel movement because, frankly, we don't know anything about him. And we're going to try and keep it that way. And in a piece of somewhat inaccurate news reporting, as opposed to op-ed piece, we have this from the East Bay Times. piece by Paul Rogers notes, Tiny fish hindering water capture. With the subheadline, environmental rules to protect endangered Delta smelt have curbed pumping to reservoirs by nearly half as stormwater flows out to the ocean. Notes the piece, the most drenching storms in the past five years have soaked Northern California, sending billions of gallons of water pouring across the state after three years of drought. 
But 94% of the water that has flowed since New Year's Eve has continued straight to the Pacific Ocean out the Delta, instead of being captured and stored in a state reservoir. Environmental regulations aimed at protecting a two-inch-long fish, the endangered Delta smelt, have required the massive state and federal pumps near Tracy to reduce pumping rates by nearly half of their full limit, sharply curbing the amount of water that can be saved for farms and cities to the south, and also real estate developments out in the desert, we would hasten to add. Now, after this alarming headline, if you keep reading in the piece, it does balance out a little bit. After a diagram saying, water opportunity lost, the text does note that these pumps are enormous and over time have disrupted fish and wildlife in the Delta, including smelt and salmon, sometimes grinding them up, sometimes making sloughs run backwards, and other times removing up to half of the Delta's fresh water. Once plentiful, smelt and salmon numbers crashed. This winter, only five have been found in the Delta by scientists. Yes, five fish. Actually, I think they found zero, but we'll spot them five. This notes that the key rule that has limited pumping in the last two weeks is called the first flush rule. It requires that the pumps be ratcheted down after the first big rain every winter so that migrating smelt can move westward away from the pumps. Well, we just had our ninth, count them, ninth atmospheric river hit California, so I'm not sure why they're referring to this as the first rain. I suspect this is a very biased piece influenced by water interests in California, which reminds me of the famous statement made, I think, about a century ago by some politician in California that said, now, whiskey, that's for drinking. Water, that's for fighting over. We're going to have to bring Dan Bacher back on this program to talk about this. Uh, One of our correspondents in Los Angeles, uh, Bruce Bronstein, once wrote a letter to the Los Angeles Times complaining that he, he needed to be treated as well as a Delta smelt, he said. We had him on the show to berate him for his uh, small-minded view. Because by all accounts, the Delta smelt has always been the keystone species in the California Delta. And yet, it has disappeared from the environment. But don't worry, they're going to restore the Delta by putting more pumps up higher near Hood in the Jerry Brown slash Gavin Newsom twin tunnels, now one tunnel program which is a revamping of the old peripheral canal. You need to get Dan Bacher back on this program to talk about this. We, we do like the piece I'm holding uh, in my left hand that he put in the news and reviews some time back <laughs> that's, that's, that's headlined, As state preps, residents make their case the Delta Tunnel is an environmental crime story in full view. If you're a resident of Northern California at the moment, you've probably noticed that there's all sorts of warnings being posted that you should stay away from floodwaters in no small part because they are filled with sewage. When we get the kind of heavy rains that we've had in the past few weeks, it just overwhelms our sewage treatment plants and overflows them, which, in our opinion, reminds us of the fact that there are too damn many people in California. We think that's one way to interpret the fact that we now have uh, raw sewage flowing all over the state. Of course, you have to think that if they had fewer people in California, they'd have probably fewer sewage treatment plants, so I don't know. We reported some time back about uh, the fact that a firestorm had been created at Stanford when officials set out to reduce harmful language. Apparently, according to Stanford officials, this 13-page internet technology pamphlet, quote, missed the intended mark, unquote. According to the Mercury Times, Stanford University officials cited, quote, intense recent feed, unquote, whatever the hell that means, in their decision to cast aside a newly crafted harmful language guide 
that sent the internet into a frenzy last month for discouraging the use of words like American, Hispanic, and cakewalk. Now, this pamphlet was written by the Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative at Stanford in partnership with People of Color in Technology and the Stanford CIO Council. The, quote, language guide, unquote, is part of a multi-phase, multi-year project (laughs) to address harmful language and information technology used at the university. Its goal is to, quote, eliminate many forms of harmful language, including racist, violent, and biased language. Well, the devil's always in the details, isn't it? The 13-page guide also discourages the use of what it described as ableist, also ageist, also colonialist, and culturally appropriative language. And no, we're not sure what they mean by culturally appropriative language. While it's true that pajama is a word from the Hindi language, if you refer to what you sleep in as a pajama, does that mean you are culturally appropriating Indian culture? I I don't know. Research continues. And no, Mr. Miller, I have no idea where to place the phrase everybody wang chung tonight in this discussion. Perhaps at Stanford, they would regard it as colonialist or racist. We, we just don't know. I do note in reading this article that they also considered homeless person to be a word that had to go. And I have observed what, what must be some woke reporting, which now refers to unhoused residents of a community. Now, in fairness, we do want to note that in previous statements, Stanford made clear the guide was not university policy and does not represent mandates or requirements. That didn't stop the internet from going berserk, and maybe us too a little bit. I'm a little unclear what their objection was to the word Hispanic. Although it is, in fact, a word yours truly has complained about on this program. Having Iberian ancestors myself, I've always puzzled over the fact that if your family came from Spain, you are this thing called Hispanic, and are then lumped with all of the various impoverished nations of the New World where Spanish is the official language. Whereas if you come from the Portuguese side of the border, which, in fact, my family does, that means that I am somehow as Caucasian as the Prince of Wales. And here's something we don't know. Is there a new Prince of Wales now that the Prince of Wales has become King Charles? We, we think that the, the heir to the British throne uh, becomes the Prince of Wales, but um, we're going to have to look into this. We're going to make some phone calls. Something tells us we, we might get lucky in this department. We've had a lot of fun in this program, um, mocking some of the new inventions that are supposed to make our lives better coming out of the big tech companies. And so, that being the case, I think we must make some mention of the recent Consumer Electronics Show, which is now called the CES. I believe this takes place annually in Las Vegas, Nevada. And what more serious place could you choose to bring forward the inventions that will make our lives better than Las Vegas? Here's one we have to like. Notes the uh, reporting on the Vegas show. Have you ever wondered what your dog would say if he could speak to you? Well, yeah, most people do. Fluent Pet promises the next best thing. Buttons, the company says, you can train your dog to push if it's hungry, needs to go outside, or wants to play. The buttons come in a hexagon-shaped plastic mat called a hextile. Hex tiles can reportedly be connected to each other to form a bigger collection of buttons. So I guess that gets your dog actually talking then. He just keeps pushing buttons. Leon Trottier, the Fluent Pet CEO, said, We find that actually when dogs kind of know that they're being understood because they have the precision and specificity of the buttons, then they complain less 
because they're no longer wondering whether they're actually communicating what they wanted us to understand. Yeah, maybe. And yes, at, at the show, the Fluid Pet Connect company notes that it has a new app that notifies owners when their dog presses a button and collects data on how the buttons are used. You know, big tech just can't stop collecting personal data. Here's one we really like, a high-tech stroller. The Canadian startup Glucksind has a stroller designed to make life easier, it says, for parents on the go. The AI-powered stroller, I'd have to stop right there. The idea of putting your baby in a stroller and trusting it to AI just doesn't seem like a good idea to this correspondent, but what do I know? Report of this AI-powered stroller has a sensor that can tell when you've picked up a fussy baby, at which point it will roll in front of you while you walk without having to touch it. Now, when the baby is in the stroller, you have to keep your hands on it. Sounds like a good plan. But the battery will help propel it, making it easier to push uphill. It stops automatically if it gets too far away from whoever is pushing it. It also can rock the baby back and forth. The company's currently taking pre-orders and hopes to deliver them beginning in July. This can be yours for the amazingly low, low price of only $3,300. Baby not included. Well, I've only got a couple minutes left and we haven't touched on anything serious yet, so why start now? So let's jump to a meme I stumbled upon, which said, I got kicked out of the Walmart break room today. They asked me what I was doing there. I said, I'm on break. What do you think? They said, you don't work here. I told them, I just went through the self-checkout, so clearly I do. And here's an item from a month or two ago that I've been sitting on. Apparently, a South African man sparked online hysteria after posting photos of dead plants that looked like aliens crawling from the sea. Anyway, Mr. Miller and I are looking at the photo here, which is a puzzler. Uh, these apparently are shots of upside-down aloe vera plants. They do look like spidery-like creatures crawling along a, a wet surface. Evidently, Jan Vorster, who snapped these photos in his hometown of Still Bay in South Africa, and then unleashed an uproar when he posted them to a South African Facebook group. Vorster said he was trying to raise awareness about environmental destruction, but added, I learned a lot about social media. He clearly scared a lot of people who told him they were canceling their vacations to South Africa. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw, and this thing must be hollow. He's moving! Keep those men back! Keep those idiots back! Come on, man. Shades of Orson Welles. And by the way, if you never heard our broadcast we did, I think, on three different occasions of uh, uh, our commentary on the famous Mars invasion, War of the World's drama they did on CBS back circa 1939 that caused a national uproar, we suggest you go to our archives at radioparallax.com and pull that one up. We had a lot of fun. And something that, in fact, is not a radio hoax is the fact that we got to take a break. So let's, let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.